Sean, could you hit these, uh, the uh, stage lights? I think it's the third. Yeah, you go. Thank you. All right. Man, I tell you what, we sure miss Sergio. He's on vacation right now. And, and we miss him, man, because he does all of that for everybody. He freezes you ladies when you, you know, when you want to be warm and he'll make you sweat when you want to be cool. And, you know, he's always doing the good things like, like that. But he's on vacation. Get, uh, deserved a well-deserved vacation for him. All right. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 9. It's good that we can have a little joy together because we're, hit, we're, we're looking at some very heavy-duty passages in the book of Revelation. So I want us to get focused now on that. We're going to see tonight in this passage a a connection with the judgments of the seals which were found in chapters 6 and 7 and the trumpet judgment, in particular the sixth trumpet judgment which is what we're looking at tonight and how it coincides with the sixth bowl judgment or vile judgment that's coming later in chapter 16. Uh, The theme, though, of all of this, of course, is the judgment that is going to come upon the inhabitants of the earth. The church is not here at this time, as we're going through the Scriptures. There are believers on the earth, we know, because the Scriptures have also let us know that there are tribulation saints, people who come to the Lord during that time when their eyes are open and realize, wow, we should have paid attention when uh, we were being told about the coming of Christ. But they came to the Lord, and many will come to the Lord because of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are still sealed by the Lord for this time. They'll be on the earth, but protected. Now the saints will, some will be protected, others will, of course, uh, give their lives for Christ. Many will. We met some of them all the way back in chapter 6. When their cries came from the altar. We're going to go back to that altar today for just a moment. The altar of incense. So, we're getting into the sixth trumpet judgment. And so let's begin with verse 13. And then the sixth angel sounded. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. This is the, uh, the same altar of incense. saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared, now notice this, who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
that's a pretty ominous statement, isn't it? Just hard to grasp. But nonetheless, that is what it says. The four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. On the morning of Abraham Lincoln's death, a crowd of 50,000 people gathered before the exchange building in New York. Feelings ran high, natural enough in the circumstances, and there was danger of its finding expression in violence. And then a well-built man in an officer's uniform stepped to the front of the balcony and in a voice that rang like a trumpet called, or a trumpet call cried out. And he said this, he said, fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are round about him, speaking of the Lord. Clouds and darkness are round about him. His pavilion is dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the establishment of his throne. Mercy and truth go before his faith, his face. Fellow citizens, God reigns. And the government at Washington still lives. Instantly the tumult was stilled as the people grasped the import of those sublime words. And the speaker was General James A. Garfield, himself to become a martyr president 16 years later. I've been reading a biography in the life of James Garfield, quite an interesting biography, but He was a believer in Jesus Christ. And the words that he shared were from the Word of God. And what he shared was to let the people know that no matter what kind of chaos has been created because of this assassination, God is still sovereign. God is still on the throne and our own government in spite of all of the struggles of the civil war it still continues so it's something that we must never forget that God is indeed in control and it doesn't matter what we're going through it doesn't matter how chaotic things may look God is and always will be in control and that folks should be a comfort to our hearts and our lives today. Whether we speak about the troubles and trials that we see existing in in our nation and what we see globally today, God is still on the throne. And if you remember our study last week, that with the sound of the sounding of the fifth trumpet we saw the proclamation of the first of three woes that was to be released upon the inhabitants of the earth. And that, of course, during the time of the Great Tribulation, which which is yet to come. It is with this fifth trumpet that we saw Satan 
represented by a falling star, given the keys to the bottomless pit by God. And you see, Satan is bound by the sovereignty of God. Something, that, something else that we are not to forget. Satan is bound by the sovereignty of God. In fact, this was made clear to us in the book of Job. And we looked at that a little bit last time. We're going to come back to it for just a moment. But as stated last time from the first chapter of Job, Satan approached the Lord to accuse him and to accuse Job of the fact that since the Lord was blessing Job abundantly, of course Job was going to praise God and be obedient to Him. Why in the world would he do anything else? But if Satan could inflict a little pain, a little turmoil in his life, then we would see where his heart was really at. Or so the enemy thought. See, I hope and pray that our lives are like Job's. In that it makes the enemy think that he could make us turn. But we won't because we love God too much. Because we love Jesus Christ too much. Because we seek to serve Him no matter what we face. No matter what trials we may deal with on a daily basis. So again, God sets boundaries on what Satan was allowed to do to Job. Uh, let's, let's consider that. Go back to Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. We won't have to look at President Garfield anymore. God is in control, isn't he? All right, let's go to Job 1, verse 9. I forgot to put that slide up, by the way. So Satan answered the Lord, and he said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Now look at this. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Now, wouldn't you like to go and tell the Lord, Lord uh, you know, if he's talking about you to Satan, wouldn't you like to go up and say, Lord, could I object for just a moment? Could, could I just come and say, uh, huh. God says to Satan, behold, all that he has, his possessions, all that he has is in your power. Only, he says, do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now we know what happens also in the second chapter. He allows him to touch his body. And plagues him with these, these great sores, these boils. And yet still, Job would not curse God. And he has to rebuke his wife. Who tells him, curse God and die. But he says, no. Translation is, what are you, nuts? Telling his wife. No, I'm just kidding. You know. He didn't really say that. But, but that's what, you know, what he was saying. In, in essence, what do you mean? You, what you, be quiet. God has given us everything. 
We came into this world with nothing. We go out with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But here in, in, this, in this particular passage, at least in verse, uh, verse 11 earlier, the hedge, he speaks of a hedge. You put this hedge all around your servant. And the hedge speaks of the will of God. The hedge speaks of the will of God. You see, no one can touch us without God allowing it. And that is a fact, but that is also a comfort to me. It is a fact, and it is a, it is a comfort, and it should be a comfort to you. If we can allow that truth to sink down deep into our hearts and our lives, we can have the peace of God in the most difficult situations we face. If we will let that truth, that God is in control, God would not allow anything to happen to us, but if He does allow things to happen to us, He's the one that allows it. For what reason? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Because many people ask the question, why does God allow bad things to happen? The question usually is, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? See, there's a problem with that, with that question because there are no good people. When you think about it, all of us were born into sin. To be good in the sense of, of the goodness in, of God in the, in the scriptures would mean that we, we were already perfect or we were born perfect. We're not perfect. As a matter of fact, the Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is perfect in and of ourselves. So the question is, why does God allow bad things to happen? The only true response I can give uh, to you uh, to that question is this. You'll have to ask Him. You will have to ask Him. But I can say that many times, many times it is to strengthen our faith. It is to strengthen our faith. It is to cause us to draw closer to Him. Doesn't that happen when you face a, a trial that always... You didn't expect it, but it happens. And what does it do? It draws you closer to Him. Sometimes it awakens you to the fact that you should have been praying all along. And you say, oh, I should have been praying all along. It says, okay, well, you didn't do it, but now you're here. So keep praying from here on out. Okay, now you've got it. Now don't stop. In good times and in bad, don't stop. So He causes us to draw closer to Him through these trials. Sometimes they're allowed to test our faith. Sometimes they're allowed, for that very reason, just, just, just to temper us. And many times we will never know why, but He is sovereign and He knows what is best for us. And always remember, whatever He allows, He does it because He loves us. And He loves us with an everlasting love. We won't understand that until we get to heaven. Honestly, believe it. I don't think we'll understand it. I mean, in our finite minds, I mean, we can accept it, but we don't understand it until we get to heaven. But maybe we'll get a little picture of understanding if we'll just look at the cross and see what Christ did for us in taking our sins upon Himself on our behalf. But let's remember that no matter how dark and hopeless things may look, our God is still in control, and thus Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. 
And so as Satan is given the, this key that he unlocks the door to this bottomless pit and, and rising out the smoke comes, not, uh, by the way, not military weaponry. We talked a little bit about this last week. For none are locked in the center of the earth. I, I really don't know of any military weaponry that's locked in the center of the earth because that's kind of where the bottomless pit kind of leads us. But it did unlock those demonic locust-like creatures which come upon the face of the earth to inflict pain upon mankind for five months. We talked about this last week. Upon those who are not sealed by God. Jude tells us that these creatures are reserved for this time of judgment. We saw that last week as well in Jude verse 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for, notice, the judgment of the great day. For the judgment. So these angels that we're going to meet here in just a moment are reserved for this judgment by God. And so when the fifth trumpet sounds, that was last week, death will take a holiday for five months. People will be writhing in pain, begging to die, and they will not be able to for five months. But now, as the sixth trumpet sounds, the second woe begins. And with it, we also see death and destruction. For five months, funeral homes were losing business because nobody was dying or nobody will be dying. We're looking at it from the perspective of John. John has seen this as it's already happened. But from where we are, this is going to happen. Five months, no one dies. But after those five months, that business will be booming again. Almost overwhelmingly. Because death and destruction will come with a bloody vengeance. With this judgment we will see one-third of the inhabitants of the earth destroyed. That is hard for us right now to fathom. But that is what the Bible says. One-third of the inhabitants of the earth destroyed. It is another warning call. It is a call to repentance. The question is, will the inhabitants of the earth respond? Let's go back to verse 13 of our text. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, it is significant that a voice will come forth from the four horns of the golden altar which is before the Lord. In both the tabernacle and temple of Israel, the tabernacle, which was the temporary home of, of the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, which was a more permanent structure. But in both the tabernacle and the temple of Israel, the golden altar was the altar of incense, which represented the prayers of God's people. In this case, the prayers of the martyred under the altar and the tribulation saints on earth. The cries continue. The four horns are mentioned because they were at each corner of the altar. 
And the atoning blood of sacrifice was applied to these horns. It was poured upon each of the four corners of the altar of incense. And so, with that thought, was the persistent theme of the prayers of God's people that will play a major role in the end time scenario. So, let let me just encourage you that even though we're studying the the scriptures today of of Revelation and the end time scenarios that that are about us now, and really we're living in the last days, we're seeing a lot of this preparation for those days happening right now. Even still, we shouldn't look at it as if, well, it's already going to happen. So I will just kind of wait for the Lord to come and take us home. No, we need to pray. We need to be in prayer for God's will to continually be done. Because it's going to be. But, you know, prayer is such an essential part of our lives as believers. We shouldn't even leave it out when we already know that God's word is going to to happen, as he says it is. So it isn't a matter of praying, you know, without knowledge. You have knowledge of this. It's praying for people to come to Jesus. It's praying for our family members to come to Jesus. It's praying for people that we've met or people that we know that we work with that don't know Jesus. We're, 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 we need to realize that as we study this, we're, we're looking at very ominous times. And an ominous judgment is going to come upon the inhabitants of the earth. Whoever is here, they're going to continually be tested. Prayer is so important as we study this end time scriptures. The voice would then command the angel that blows the sixth trumpet to release the four angels that are bound at the river Euphrates. Now, let me say that these are not the same angels that we saw back in Revelation chapter 7, which were holding the four winds from blowing upon the earth, the sea, and the trees. Those were God's angels. Those were God's servants. The difference is that the angels here in chapter 9 are bound. They are bound. And the picture is completed when we go back to that verse in Jude, Jude 6, and see that they were bound in chains for this particular time. There are others that bound, but there are four particular ones that are bound for this particular service. So it indicates that they are fallen angels. Not the angels of God, the servants of God. They are fallen angels. While those in chapter 7 are holy angels serving the Lord. And I think that there's a spiritual lesson in this that I think we we should just kind of consider for a moment. That when we are not bound, when we are not bound by sin, and when we are not bound by the cares of this world, We will willingly serve the Lord. We willingly serve the Lord when we're not bound by the things of this earth, when we're not bound by sin or the temptations of sin. And it brings to mind the statement that Jesus made to his disciples in in John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. We're going the right direction here. There it is. 
For Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You see, when you're a slave of sin, you're bound. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. As believers, we've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. And what does that allow us to do? It allows us to worship the Lord. It allows us to serve the Lord. It allows us to to do whatever it is that the Lord places into our lives to do for His glory, for His honor, and for His kingdom. And so, just the very fact that these angels are bound kind of gives us that, just that little spiritual picture into into the fact that we're, we're no longer bound by... By sin, we're, 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 not, we're to be no longer slaves of sin. We're not to let sin have dominion over our lives. So we're free now. Thank God Almighty, the old spirituals would say. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. No longer bound. In that freedom, serve the Lord. The River Euphrates begins by Mount Ararat in Turkey and it flows for some 1,700 miles before it empties into the Persian Gulf. The Euphrates, besides being the natural boundary separating the east from the west, is also the boundary of land given to the nation of Israel in Genesis chapter 15 verse 18. Where it says, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, why these demonic creatures are let loose in this particular area of the world, we're not told here. But we do know from Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, you, know, you can turn... And look at that later, Genesis 2, verses 10 through 14. We're told there that the Euphrates was one of the four tributaries which flowed from the river that came out of Eden. Now, I want you to consider something. Consider that there, there in that place, Satan began his first diabolical work against our first parents, Adam and Eve, which resulted in our fallen human race. There, in that very same area, it was there that the first murder was committed. Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. Brothers. Cain killed his brother Abel. In that very same vicinity, man's first organized rebellion against God took place after the flood, after the warning of God. And man, out of the eight that were in the ark, repopulated the earth to the extent that man now rebels against God again. In Genesis 11. And there was the foundation for the city of Babylon. Babylon, the fountainhead of idolatry. The fountainhead of occult practices. And even today we see the spread of 
the militant religion of Islam spreading from that region throughout the face of the earth. Isn't that interesting? And we should all know, I've mentioned it a hundred times if I've mentioned it once, that Islam is not the same religion or kind of religion as Christianity or Judaism. And certainly the God of Islam, Allah, is not the same God that we worship. We've been told a lot of stuff by politicians. It would be nice if they would open their Bible someday and see how different these religions are. Islam is more than a religion, actually. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it is a political position. It is a governmental position. But we're not here to talk about it, only to say that it is in that particular area where there has been a very strong spreading of the hatred of, of uh, toward Christ and toward uh, the Lord. There, it's out of this area that God will send forth His judgment. It is out of this area. And notice, if you will, let's go to verse 15 now of our text. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, let me add one more thing. I don't want to forget this, but let me add one more thing. Don't forget that God made that covenant with Abraham. He said, to your seed I have given you this land. To your seed I have given you this land. That coveted land of inestimable wealth is the desire of nations, but God has promised it to His people and He will protect it for them. So I know that it is in that region that we see all of these things coming out. But remember, God had promised this land to Israel. And in Deuteronomy 11, verse 24, very quickly, let me say, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. From the wilderness of Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory. So let's get back to our text. Don't forget that part. I don't want you to think that just because we talk about the river Euphrates and all the demons and everything's coming out of there, that's all it's about. No, God said this is the land that, you know, all of the land that I've given you goes all the way to this, to this boundary to the east. So take notice now, let's get back to our text and take notice that these fallen angels, as we see there in verse 15, these fallen angels were prepared for a specific time period. But consider again what it says. Consider again what it says. Let's look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Hour, day, month, and year. Some people have taken that statement to say that this particular judgment is going to last 13 months and 25 hours. An hour, a day, that's 25 hours. (laughs) Right? A month, a year. That's 13 months. So 13 months and 25 hours is going to be the time of the judgment. Eh, Not necessarily. 
If you look at it from the, even in the English, this time even in the English translation, there's a point being made. The point that is being made is there is a specific time. An hour that fits in that, that very day, a day of a certain month of a certain year. A specific moment. When these angels will be unleashed to cause death and destruction upon the earth. We cannot put a time, other than the fact that it falls within a seven year period of time, but we cannot put a specific time upon these judgments. Because remember that what they are called, what the day of, what, what the uh, uh, great tribulation is called is the day of the Lord. So there's no time frame, no 24 hour time frame to that day. That day is an extended period. So understand that in prophetic language. So there's a divine plan to be carried out. There is an exact hour of God's judgment and it will come to pass. Always remember that these demonic ministers of judgment can only act under divine control. They cannot act without express command. Therefore, they will only act at the very moment that God releases them to act. These four fallen angels will go about to slay the third part of the human race. Which means that if there are seven billion people on the earth at that time... This terrible scourge will reduce the world's population to about 2.3 billion people. That's a, that's a horrific thought, isn't it? That's a lot of people. Now, if we combine this number with the quarter of the earth's inhabitants killed at the opening of the fourth seal which we've already studied before, back in chapter 6. That would mean that over half of the earth's population would be destroyed in these judgments so far. That's even more horrific. We cannot comprehend death on this scale. I mean, consider how our hearts sank on September the 11th, 2001. Over the 3,000 people that were murdered that day. Our hearts always seem to, to, to just take a blow when we, when we hear of, of our own troops over in Afghanistan or in, or in Iran, or Iraq, I should say. When we hear the reports that our own troops have been killed in action. It burdens our hearts. We read history and we, uh, we sink so deeply when we read of the seven million Jews that were exterminated, or the millions of Russians killed by Stalin, or the hundreds of thousands of slaves that were mistreated and killed in the slave trades of, of the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. 
It burdens our hearts. Because we as believers in Jesus Christ are not about death, we're about life because our God is about life and not about death. But because of man's sin, death has entered into the picture. And what would have been solely reserved for the devil and his own angels, which is hell, it now opens up for all who reject the truth of Jesus Christ. And yet it burdens our hearts. We cannot comprehend death on this scale, for it is like a slaughterhouse. We can't even really imagine the carnage that will fill the land. Think about that for a moment. Out of all of this death, I'm sure that we will see even more pestilence take place than ever before. Even, be, even within the, 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 the fourth, uh, or I should say the third, uh, the third and fourth uh, horsemen of, of, of chapter 6. But notice something else that now happens in verse 16. It says, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. Now, I kept thinking about that number, and I have to, I have to, I got to tell you, we sometimes look at the number of, of the army, but we forget something. There's that many horses, too. Because they're all horsemen. I, that boggled my mind today. I, I've seen this over what, 40 years. I've been looking at this and I think, wow, 200 million, 200 million army, 200 million man army. That means 200 million horses too. Now this is what's going to get us to, to try to figure out why this is here and what it's saying to us. It says, now the army of the, uh, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, that's significant, that John would say, I heard the number of them. That is telling us this is a very specific number. All right, keep that in mind. And then it says in verse 17, it says, And thus I saw the horses in the vision. So John saw them too. See, we can't forget that there's horses here mentioned in the vision. And those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. Uh, that's very interesting, the fiery part and the sulfur part, because it kind of gives you some detail of something that has to do with judgment and fire. The hyacinth blue, I'm still working on that one. But then it says, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And so now we're dealing with symbolic literature, possibly. Just keep that in mind. The heads of, uh, of the horses were like, like, notice there's the word again, like, we talked about that last week, like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Okay, so now, we've got to deal with that. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, Smoke 
and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. Now that's not symbolic, that's literal. Because it refers back now to the devastation of the third that, of mankind that are taken out. And this is how. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads. And with them they do harm. And it, it makes you wonder about poor John. <laughs> he's not poor, but he's got he's to write down these things. Because that is what he's commanded to do. To take down this vision. And he sees it in these, in, in, the, in, the, in only the terms that he could understand. So first of all, we need to consider whether this number that is mentioned, as we, we saw earlier in verse 16, whether this number mentioned is literal or symbolic. Let's deal with that first. And while there are some who believe the number is symbolic and only suggesting an impossible number to count and greater than any army uh, man has ever seen, it is still a specific number. And if you'll remember, we just read that John saw the number. It is a specific number. 200 million. Why not, why, why, why not just say 100 million? Or, or why not just say 100 billion? Or what about infinity? Infinity plus infinity. How about infinity times infinity? You've seen that commercial? I, I just had to throw that in. The little kids are cute. Why not? It's specific. Secondly, is this an army of men or an army of demons? Now remember, we've just seen that the voice commands the, the blower of the, of the sixth trumpet to release the four fallen angels they're obviously not alone so we ask is this an army of men or an army of demons okay we're not going to solve that problem tonight because there's another mention later I'm going to bring it up so you can see it and we're going to deal with it when we get to that part in chapter 16 but the description of this army while quite grotesque and terrifying could be speaking, it could be speaking, now just listen, it could be speaking of modern mechanized warfare, but it's also weird enough to be describing demonic associations. As for the size of the army itself, there has never been a human army of this size amassed at any time in history. At any time in history. The total size of all the armies on both sides at the height of World War II was only 70 million. That's it. At the height of World War II, all the armies on, all, on both sides of, of, the, of the conflict, the Allies and the Axis powers, it only amounted to 70 million. That's it. That's all the armies going against each other. Years ago, Communist China claimed to have a a 200 million man army, but that number was doubted by many. But what it did was it sparked something back in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, when prophetic literature started to pop up more and more and more. People began to say, hey, you know, we're getting close to the coming of Jesus. 
and, and the rapture of the church. And so they started thinking, okay, this number, 200 million, well, there, there's got to be, and they're going to come from the east, as we'll see later. Uh, so, well, what's in the east? Oh, my goodness, there's, there's China. So when they claimed the 200 million man army, they said, see, there it is. Not so fast. Whoa. Pull the reins on those 200 million horses for just a second. We're going to get to it. But I want you to consider some other things. We have to consider. We have the opportunity right now still to consider these things. But on the other hand, think about it this way as well. The religion of Islam. It boasts over a billion people. A billion Muslims on this earth. That's one-seventh of the earth's population. And eventually, their army of jihad would include all of its membership. Technically speaking. But as an army worldwide... In all the countries that today make up the uh, Muslim world, it would not be hard to establish a 200 million man army. You can talk about, I mean, I mean let's, let's face it, even back in 1967, uh, during the uh, Six Day War, the Arab armies surrounding Israel numbered close to 80 million. And that's, that's counting all the people too. <laughs> you know, so everybody considered themselves enemies of Israel. So, you know, you think about that. So, it, today you look at all the Arab nations that are Islamic. We used to say that Russia was a great enemy of Israel because they were north of Israel. Well, that we were saying that about Soviet Russia. We were saying about the USSR. But after, uh, you know, the Soviet uh, uh, Russian whole state of, of it was, was divided and, and, and all... And, and made a, into independent states, as it were, all of the southern parts of Russia, as it were, Kurdistan, Uzbekistan, anything that ended in S-T-A-N, those are Islamic nations. What is the greatest anti-Christ movement today in the world? It's Islam. It's Islam. So please keep, just, just keep that in mind. Just keep it in your pocket or, you know, in your notebook there. Just, just some things to think about. But still, should an army of that size be assembled to march west, it is very difficult, though not impossible, to see such an army killing a billion plus people. If it was a human army. Hence, the safest view right now would be to see this army as demonic and fitting into the context 
with the locust army that was released when the bottomless pit was open. So, again, keep these things in mind. You know, we don't know because we haven't seen it yet. I'm just giving you a lot of uh, things to consider and think about. And we will consider the corresponding text of Revelation 16, which, by the way, mentions the sixth bowl judgment, as this is the sixth trumpet judgment. In chapter 16, the sixth bowl judgment, uh, we're going to study it later. But, but let me just present it to you for your information. So turn to Revelation 16. And notice in the beginning of verse 12, it says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl. So these are now the bowl judgments, as if it's just pouring out these, these judgments upon the earth. It says, uh, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. So there's the connection with the Euphrates River. And it was, its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The kings of the east. Now, if it's just China, they don't have kings. Whatever, whoever the leader is at the moment is their one king or president or, you know, supreme ruler. How many of you remember Mao Zedong? You know, for, for many years he was the, he was it. You know, he was like God. Just like those nut jobs in, in North Korea. When they're the leaders, you know, I mean, they're nuts. Something's wrong with their genes or something up here. But, but yet the, the people revere them like a god. See, so they just have one leader. So when you see kings of the East, are we not talking about more than just one nation? So keep, again, keep that in mind. Now let's look at the next verse. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And I'm really happy I don't have to tell you what that means right now. I've got to keep working on that one. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Do we know what battle that is? It's coming up. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Or Har Megiddo. If you go to Israel with us in March, you get to go there. You get to see it. But you won't see the war because it won't be happening then when we go. We hope it's not going to happen. We go. No, it won't happen. We've been there many times. But it gives you an idea that there is a place there in Israel where you can see a major, massive battle take place. We'll get to, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But I wanted to bring it up because I wanted you to see the connection with the Euphrates River, with the spirits and the demonic spirits and the judgments. All right? So just kind of hold on to certain thoughts nobody's right or wrong if we think it's an army of men or an army of demons. Uh, I mean, eventually we'll know and then we'll, we'll know. But we're not going to know right now. Okay, so 
Getting back to our text, what will be the people's response? Because this is what we need to see at the end of this chapter, is the people's response to this judgment. There is a response. Let's look at it. Verse 20. Now all of this is happening. This is, this is the judgment that's coming upon the earth. And a third of mankind has been wiped out and just killed. But the rest of mankind, notice, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. That was their response. They did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Sorceries. Which also, by the way, includes drugs. Murders, that's pretty self-explanatory. Sexual immorality of all kinds. This world is plagued by that. Thefts. People steal from the church. I know it's none of you. But people are stolen from the church, man. They take stuff. They think it's just because it's in the church. Well, we can take it. Hey! Read this. Better be careful. Whoops. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries. That's the response. They did not repent. Notice that there were those who were not killed, first of all. There were those who were not killed. God will permit only one-third of the race to die under this tremendous woe while sparing two-thirds of mankind, not because they deserved being spared, but because in wrath the Lord remembers mercy. That is a very clear statement in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. When one person turns away from evil and wickedness and turns to the Lord, God shows his mercy. If one turns, if a hundred turn, if a thousand turn, if ten thousand turn, God is merciful. What was that thing that Abraham laid before the Lord, before the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah? Lord, if there be fifty people, fifty righteous people, will you destroy it? The Lord said no. 40, no. 35? 30? 20? 10? What? Lord says, just get them out. I'm going to destroy. Eventually there were none righteous. But in that, God remembered mercy as well to take Lot and his family out before the judgment just as he has taken out the church by this time, because the judgment would be so great on the earth. 
Folks, the Lord has never delighted in the death of the wicked. I, I know I've said that before, but I don't want you to forget that. The Lord has never delighted in the death of the wicked. He delights to be gracious to the guilty who turn to Him. He does delight in being gracious to those who turn. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. How interesting he says this, because notice what he says. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Can you imagine the very people of God had turned and rebelled against their own God, and yet he called them to return. He says, I don't have... I don't have delight and pleasure in, in, in the death of the wicked, but you've become wicked. And because I'm righteous, I have to judge wickedness. So turn. Turn back to me. So what we find here in this passage is that those who remain on the earth refuse to repent. And in effect, they refuse to repent with no remorse in their hearts for the things that they did. For their idol worship. For the work of their hands, <clears throat> which, which suggests the things that we've done. Because we've become our own gods. That's idol worship in itself. To worship anything or anyone that isn't the God who created you. And then not only do they refuse to repent, but they return to their rubbish. I would have used a better word, but I can't use that word. They return to their rubbish. Again, I want you to keep in mind that idolatry is nothing more than demon worship when you consider the end result of trusting only in the things that are seen. And so what you see in in the end there in verse 21, the murders would continue. Hey, there's already a a third of the people killed by, by this judgment, but you're ready to kill some more? Because of such a selfish society? And then the sorceries, the witchcraft, the connection to witchcraft and, 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 and drugs of all kinds. The word sorceries and witchcraft, it, it, it comes from the root word that we get the word pharmacy from, pharmakia. It's all tied together. And then you have the sexual immorality. I mean, how... Perverted is this society today. And the thievery. It's interesting that thefts are mentioned here. I think of the times when we have we have major disasters happening or, or riots that happen and then what do, what do people do? They go and they, and, they, and they loot. They take what is not theirs. 
It all comes from the same root. If you do these things, you're just a demon worshiper. Whether you believe it or know it or not. Because it's all born of this spiritually demonic focus that was started in the garden when Satan said, Did God really say? He didn't say it. God's a liar. He just doesn't want to give you what he already has. But if you eat, you'll know good and evil. You'll be able to see just like God. And how many billions of people have been deceived into thinking, just eat the fruit and you're going to be just fine. You're going to be just like God. And instead of eating the fruit like some people have done, They just drank the Kool-Aid and they died for following a person who led them astray from the God of love and grace and mercy. We all know Psalm 115 verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, their work of men's, the work of men's hands talking about the idols of, that, make, that, that are made by the hands of men. They have, no, they, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Notice this, those who make them are like them. Those who make the idols are just like their idols. So is everyone who trusts in them. If you trust in your idols, you become like your idols. Paul kind of j- chimes in very similarly when he says in Romans 8, uh, 1.18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold back or hold down the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, which tells us that everybody has the knowledge of God. So if a person says he's an atheist, he's been fooled into believing that. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping Things. What is man trying to protect today? The earth, the trees, the whales, the seals. Hey, I love all of those animals too. But it's okay to kill 50 million infants in the wombs of mothers today? Do you see how Sorted, the mind of man has become. 
But if the Lord is the God you serve, then you will become more like Him. You will find rest, contentment, satisfaction in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. For the earth dwellers, we see dead sinners worshiping dead idols. But we worship the living God. You see, our God is not dead. He's living and He's able to respond to our heart's cry. The psalmist, actually, if you, if you were still kind of in Psalm 115, if you go just one chapter over to 116, Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2, it says, I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications, because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon, upon Him as long as I live. Our God is not dead. I, our God is very much alive. You know, back in the 60s, there was this movement, the God is dead movement. And it was started by people who had read all of the works of Frederick Nietzsche, who was a nut job, actually, back in, in, in Germany. You know, he, he was a philosopher and he, well, he just had all kinds of problems. Anyway, but, but he started getting into uh, some Eastern uh, mysticism and thought, you know, uh, uh, started reading the writings of Zarathustra and, and, and one thing or another. But anyway, he, he, he just came to the conclusion that God was dead. And so that's what he, uh, and that's what he said in some of his writings. So now these college professors back in the 60s, you know, said, this is the God is, God is dead now. God is no longer around. So people would write on the walls of, you know, the schools or bathrooms or wherever, you know, God is dead, sign Nietzsche. And we can argue whether the Christian who could come in and later on would cross that out and underneath would say, Nietzsche is dead, sign God. And argue whether he should have done that or not, but, but nonetheless, there's the truth. Because right after the God is dead movement happened back in the early 60s, there was a move of the Holy Spirit that came upon the church and awakened the church. And what was called the Jesus movement began. And hippies who were so filled with mind-altering drugs and marijuana and LSD and into the, you know, the free sex thing and all of that, all of a sudden they realized all of that was empty. They really were searching for something. And then they found it in Jesus Christ. Some of us are thankful for that movement today because it brought us to the truth. And it hasn't left us. And I hope it never leaves you. Jesus is alive. And His Spirit is alive. And His Word is alive. And He's coming again. And we need to be ready. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much.